0: Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview.
1: I think this building should be condemned. There's serious metal fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs. And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone.
0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten, and I'm joined by Chad Gross. And Chad, I'm still pumped from our previous podcast last week with Dr. Hugh Ross, and I'm sure you are as well.
2: Man, it was outstanding. And I actually walked out of my apologetics cave where I record that mm-hmm. is, is in a location that I cannot reveal. Of course. But, and I said to my wife, who also happened to be at my secret, layer that no one knows where it is she was ironing your costume exactly i said Mm -hmm. to her i said that might be my favorite and and i've said that a few other times granted but i still have that impression of that might be my favorite i just really enjoyed it uh his knowledge you could feel his warmth and kindness even through the you know, Mm -hmm. on screen, you know, Uh, and uh, so I really enjoyed it. And and it was very encouraging and kind of spurred me on to want to become a better um, ambassador for Christ.
0: Yeah, really enjoyable interview with Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. That's reasons.org. You can catch that episode from last week. That's number 104 of the reboot numbering system. There are hundreds more interviews prior to the 100s. So if you go back into the back catalog, you can find another interview with Dr. Hugh Ross 12 years ago. But uh, that's episode 104. This week, we're shifting gears and talking a little bit more sciency again, this time in the area of biology, and we're talking about evolution with our guest Perry Marshall. Now, if anyone's listened to the Unbelievable Radio program, which is great with uh, Justin Brierly, you know, you may have heard of Perry Marshall before because he's been a guest on there a few times talking about evolution and his take on evolution. We're going to be discussing his book titled Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design we'll let perry unpack some of the ideas in the book but i found it a really interesting read sort of a a look at what's going on in our dna how cells and uh, organisms respond and develop and change over time and uh, how he thinks we should reframe how we talk about evolution and the mechanisms behind what's going on in essence shifting from evolution 1.0 which we're all taught random mutation Plush's natural selection over time gives you new species and development and and evolution. Um, He's saying, let's upgrade that to 2.0 because there's a lot of other mechanisms involved. Evolution is more like a Swiss army knife than this one lone mechanism. And so we're going to talk about that and talk about its implications when it comes to creationism, intelligent design, Darwinism? How much of this should we accept? Uh, how, how should we think critically about the issues? And does it really pose a threat to what we believe about God's creation and involvement in the area of science and what we how we look at science? So I'm really looking forward to this interview
2: should be fascinating i always appreciate discussions in these arenas and like to fine tune my own views being a layman having access to people who have deeply studied these topics to you know make sure that i'm representing uh, the various views fairly is always uh, something i want to take advantage of
0: so yeah it's going to be fascinating and uh we'll link to all of his resources in the show notes If you want to go to perrymarshall.info, that's his personal homepage, or his professional homepage is perrymarshall.com. And you can find lots of other books by him as well. So let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Well, Perry Marshall, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. I've known about you guys for years and here we are, mixing it up.
0: Likewise, I've heard you on unbelievable program and listened to your talks and watched some videos and read your books and uh, finally get a chance to see you and, and speak to you, so thank you very much for your time. So, we're going to be talking about your book Evolution 2.0: Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. But first off, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: So, I am a uh, I am an electrical and acoustical engineer who got laid off from engineering when my wife was pregnant, uh, three months pregnant, at which time I went into sales and marketing and eventually became uh, a marketing consultant and an and a author of books on Google ads, Facebook ads, 8020. And um, this hardly sounds like a background for a person who's going to go write a book about evolution. But one of the books that I also wrote about 20 years ago was Industrial Ethernet. Um, I did a stint working at a industrial networking company that they made hardware and software interfaces for moving data in factories. And um, just like, you know, homes have Ethernet and Wi-Fi. Factories have all these networks that are specific to automation. And that field was just exploding in the early 2000s. And um, a a academic uh, industrial publisher called me and asked if I would write an Ethernet book. And I said, yes. And so so what happened was uh, my brother was... um, So I went into business and engineering. My brother uh, and I, both pastor's kids, grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. He went to Master's Seminary in California, got a master's degree in theology, and ended up becoming a missionary in China. And in 2004, I went to visit him. And we had emails going back and forth for a couple years at that point with a lot of theological and apologetic questions. He was really trying to figure out a lot of stuff. And when I got to China, I discovered that um, he's kind of done asking all these questions and he's not a Christian anymore. He's done with this Christianity thing. And he says, "Uh, I don't believe this anymore. And in a couple months, I'm going to come home and I'm not going to be a missionary either. And I'm just done with this. And we got into an argument, and uh, I said, "Brian, look at the hand at the end of your arm. This is a nice piece of engineering, and I'm an engineer. I should know. You don't think this is a accumulation of random accidents, do you?" He goes, "Hold on," and he just came right back with with a pretty standard neo-Darwinian. All you need is mutations and selection and time and The falcon eyes are going to get better and the falcon wings are going to get better and it's going to continuously improve and you don't need God and you don't need a designer. And I didn't really have any objection to the basic idea of evolution, but he was saying more than that. He was saying that it was also a blind, random, purposeless process. I had this moment in this conversation where I thought, wait a minute even though this does not make any sense to you as an engineer, I know that there are a whole bunch of biologists that would agree with him and not me. And they can't all be stupid. So maybe there's something I don't know. And maybe you're not going to solve this on this one trip to China. And maybe it might be a good idea to shut up and stop arguing and stop making each each other miserable and go figure this out when you, you get home. Now, What I hadn't really explained is this two years of conversation that we had already been having, which suddenly culminated in this, had already planted a lot of questions in my mind. Because I had already done apologetics, I had done quite a bit of it, and I would have considered myself better than most. But you have not had an apologetics conversation until you've had it with a guy who has a master's degree in theology with Greek and Hebrew, and he knows where all the bones are buried. And I was kind of drowning. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go home, I am going to get to this bottom of this question about, is your hand a product of a purposeful process or a purposeless process? And I am probably going to let science make this decision for me. Because I also knew From being a pastor's kid in a highly theological church, that theology is kind of squishy. And you can just change one little assumption and you just endlessly argue around in circles. And as an electrical engineer, I knew that science isn't really so much that way. At least, uh, you know, building circuits is not. And so I went home and I decided to get to the bottom of this. That was 19 years ago and I had no idea how fascinating and deep this was going to be i had no idea that i would still be going deeper and deeper and deeper in the rabbit hole almost 20 years later and so that's the short introduction of how how did i get here
2: Hmm. one of the things that's interesting about your about your book it seems is that you don't really land in either one of any of the what we call traditional camps you know there's there's creationists there's evolutionists there's the intelligent design theorists right. can can you talk a bit about where you land and maybe why listeners should kind of not prejudge you based on what they they think you believe but actually listen to what you believe if that makes sense
1: yes i i hope that they will listen hear me out rather than just categorizing and dismissing so um I was raised uh, in the young Earth creation camp, and in fact, I remember John Whitcomb coming to our church and giving six nights in a row of of creation science, and it was way more interesting than you know doing exegesis on Romans. You know, he's talking about <laughs> fossils and and solar systems and Noah's Ark and and, and all this kind of stuff. I, I was probably thirteen or fourteen at the time, and And when I was maybe 23, 24, I remember discovering Hugh Ross. He actually came to our church and spoke. And so I sampled a lot of different views. But after studying this subject and and coming in as an outsider, I, I think that's a very important part of it. I came to this subject. I had a heavy theological background as a pastor's kid, but I also had an electrical engineering degree. Uh, with a specialization in communication systems and control systems. I had a lot of experience with analog stuff. I had a lot of experience with digital stuff. And so there was a giant epiphany that happened a few weeks into my search after I came home from China. And it was, uh, I found biology and evolution to be absolutely, blindingly complex. Like this is harder from an engineering point of view. The questions we're trying to solve here, the structures we find in biology are immensely more complicated and more sophisticated than anything in human technology. And I was in a good position to know what human technology is actually up to.
0: Right.
1: I I was in that world. And this is way beyond. And I, I had this epiphany, and I was trying to understand the genetic code and DNA and all that. All of a sudden, like it came to me in a flash. I'm like, wait a minute. I've seen all of this stuff before. I wrote an Ethernet book. This is digital code. This is transmitting ones and zeros from A to B. Now, in biology, it's A, C, Gs, and Ts. So it's a four-letter code instead of a two-letter code, but it's all digital code. It all is subject to the same physical forces. The mathematics are all the same. It it was one of the biggest epiphanies I ever had in my life. I'm like, "I, I know how to break this apart. This is a digital communications problem. Genetics is a digital communications problem. Evolution is a digital communications problem. I can actually start to figure this out. And all of a sudden, everything started to make sense because you can't violate the laws of physics. You can't violate the laws of information theory. And and what I started finding out was cells have been doing for three and a half billion years what humans thought we invented in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s. Oh, okay. Wow. This is amazing. And so, so I started pursuing that. And I also started mixing it up online. Um, in fact, about a year into it, I found myself, uh, to my chagrin, pulled into the world's largest atheist discussion board, Infidels, at the time. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> and defending myself, uh, I had gone to Willow Creek Community Church and given a talk there called, If You Can Read This, I Can Prove God Exists. Which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because, you know, prove with an asterisk, like infer, mm. but... But the, the argument was DNA is code. All the other codes are designed. Therefore, DNA is designed. Mm. And I, I gave that talk and I, I had all my arguments put together. And then I put it online. And I would I, I wanted to make sure that my arguments were absolutely rock solid. And I would take on anybody who challenged me. And I would get all of these emails from all these different people. And one day I started talking to this atheist And I started backing him into a corner, and he got flustered, and so he went over to Infidels. He posted a link to my Willow Creek talk. If you can read this, I can prove God exists. And he said, "Hey, I've been talking to this Perry Marshall guy. Be nice to to him while you eviscerate him, please." And it was me against this horde of all (laughs) of these. And I'm like, "Oh no, what did I get myself into?" And this was really serious because. Like, this could completely destroy my online reputation. And I I made my living as an online marketing consultant. So, I mean, we all know now that careers can be destroyed by such things. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, well, here you go, buddy. I I think you've been subconsciously asking for this, and it just showed up at your doorstep. You better defend yourself. And so I did, and this became the longest-running, most-viewed thread in the history of infidels. It went on for seven years. Wow. Um, it it was really funny because every time new posts would go onto the thread, it would pop back up to the top and it became an embarrassment to the atheist because none of them had a counter argument to what I was saying. I was like, show me a code that's not designed. All you need is one. No, snowflakes are not codes. Sand is not a code. Starlight <laughs> is not a code. And uh, Ocean waves are not a code. We we'd go round and round. And, and I soundly beat them. And so I, I spent, I mean, hundreds, thousands of hours nuancing these discussions and 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 engaging with people and asking the questions and finding better and better ways to try and explain what I was doing, what I was thinking. And And over the process of doing this, I became dissatisfied with all of the available choices or, you know, all of the stores in the mall. Mm -hmm. I was not happy entirely with the creationists or the Darwinists or the intelligent design guys. Uh, By the way, I have to say there was valuable things in every single camp, Uh, even the ones I didn't particularly like. Like You might not like the panspermia people who think that life came from outer space. You might think that sounds nutty. You know, sometimes they come up with really interesting uh, models of chemistry and things that can be very useful at times. And so, like, no matter how kooky or, you know, unsavory somebody's view is, there's usually somebody from their camp who is doing something useful and interesting. And so, I, I ended up assembling a very eclectic set of views and tools that, that I, I call Evolution 2.0. And, and um, I really wanted to create something where... I felt that like the religious zealots on the atheist and the theistic side were so entrenched and dug in that their conflict was making it impossible to have a sensible, let's just talk about the science conversation. Hmm. And so there was a lot of things that motivated me to to do it, do it the way I did.
0: That's helpful. I want to talk to you and ask why i call it evolution 2.0 and one of my thoughts is that it just so happens my daughter is studying for biology exams at the moment and so we're going over genes and dna alleles evolution and then of course well random mutations and change over time make the new species etc right. and right. so i thought well this sounds like what perry would call evolution 1.0 the idea that this is the mechanism for living things changing over time through chance and random mutation and that's gives you new biological outcome it's more advantageous for the organism and then it's retained due to natural selection now from reading your book it seems to me evolution 2.0 as you put it is more like this the organism is driven by actual code and it has the sort of as you put it swiss army knife of various tools at its disposal to respond and adapt to environmental pressures so why Evolution 2.0?
1: So, remember the conversation, you know, the, the hand at the end of your arm and my brother, mm-hmm. and this is all all you need is these random changes. Well, I really picked up on what he was saying because I'm a communications engineer. The notion that you could take any kind of code or instructions and then just randomly change it, and once in a while it's going to be better
0: is uh, adding noise to the signal.
1: You're, you're adding noise signal and any communication engineer can tell you that will never work. The only way to make it work is to take little tiny parts of it and like I'm only going to randomly mutate this teeny tiny little part. And I'm going to try a bunch of things like one of those uh, one arm bandit um, machines in a, in a gambling casino where the cherries and oranges spin. Mm-hmm. You're like, OK, like two or three at a time. Then you could do that. But like the, the standard explanation of evolution doesn't work at all. And the the creationists and intelligent design guys have been right about this all along. Uh, but there's another thing I discovered that just it blew my mind. It it rocked my world. And it was when I discovered Barbara McClintock. And she was a brilliant geneticist who in the 1940s. Um, she was doing experiments. She was damaging the chromosomes of corn plants, and she was kind of hacking the corn genome before people even knew exactly what DNA was. But they they knew what genes were, and they, they you know they knew what chromosomes were. And she was working at this, and she damaged a chromosome so that a corn plant could not reproduce. And the corn plant went and it, it copy pasted sections of code from other chromosomes, moved the code around, installed new code, repaired it, went on and reproduced. And she figured out exactly what the plant had done. And she was the first person to observe an evolutionary event and document the genetics behind it. Hmm. And her colleagues thought she was crazy. She spent seven years making absolutely sure what she thought had happened was what had happened. 1951, she goes and gives a presentation at Cold Spring Harbor. Half the audience laughed at her. The other half were angry like, woman, don't you know? Genes and chromosomes build corn plants. Corn plants don't build genes and chromosomes. And they thought she was crazy. And she couldn't get anybody to listen. And so she kind of went underground for 20 years and she just kept doing her work. And her superiors thought she was doing worthwhile work, so they let her do it. And she won the Nobel Prize in 1983. And what she figured out was every every organism, not just corn plants, but bacteria and eukaryotes and mammals and amphibians, they all have the ability to cut, splice, and rearrange their DNA and re engineer it in real time. And so, to an engineer who Up until I discovered her, I was kind of on the fence about evolution. In fact, I was very perplexed because on one hand, I knew, like knew, absolutely knew that the explanation they were giving me about these random mutations couldn't remotely possibly be correct. There wasn't the slightest chance that that was what was going on. I knew that. On the other hand, I couldn't dismiss the idea of evolution. There was, there was, there was was too many, too much evidence that I found very convincing that one species does evolve into another, that there's common ancestry and all of that. And so I was just sitting there with a dilemma and I I took the approach. Well, you know, I I don't really think the Bible has a position on this. I don't think you can read Genesis and say that, well, that can't be an evolutionary problem. I mean, it does say, uh, you know, let the ground produce creeping things and cattle and like, I, 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 I don't see any problem there. I'm just going to hold this as an open possibility. I'm going to be neutral about it. I found that arguing that DNA was code and code was designed and, and avoiding evolution or not having a position on evolution actually helped me a lot. If, if I was against evolution, it just threw up a, a wall with people. Well, that wasn't my main concern. My main concern was, is this intrinsically purposeful or is it not? Is the hand at the end of my arm a sure sign that we live in a purposeful universe or do random accidents produce stuff like this? And so when I discovered that organisms can re-engineer themselves, I said, this is more interesting than anything I've heard either of these sides arguing about. Why isn't everybody talking about this? That that was the beginning of evolution 2.0. And and I've only given just the tiniest sliver of the tip of the iceberg. It's it's just amazing what living things can do.
0: Yeah, there's a number of things you um, you know, talk about in the book. You mentioned there transposition. You talk also about horizontal gene transfer, where different genetic material between organisms are transferred, hybridization, things like epigenetics and symbiogenesis, which I don't know if we'll even get into, but uh, you know just teasing that out there for for the listener who might want to download the the ebook or listen to the audiobook um it's fascinating and and i was telling chad like when i was reading it i was like the data seems uh to be unobjectionable there's nothing intrinsic about this that threatens your faith and i'm thinking no this this all screams design to me even if you look at it like in one hand you're affirming evolution on the other hand, it's affirming design, so it's like, where do you land? How do you sort that out? And and then at the same time, I'm thinking, well, neither of these are threatening to my faith, you know. So I'm just trying to figure yeah. out, well, how did God do this? Because clearly, this is not random. Mm-hmm.
1: No, it, it, this is affirming to uh, to faith, and and it's the opposite of what people think. So here's an analogy: Did either of you guys ever use DOS? like a DOS computer back in the day. You know, you have the same prompt and you type, you know, and you insert a floppy disk. Okay, so remember DOS. I want you to imagine that Bill Gates put DOS out in 1981 and that starting in 1981, no Microsoft engineer ever touched the keyboard. They didn't mess with it. And I want you to imagine that DOS running on a, IBM 8086 computer started rewriting itself and it developed a Windows desktop and it developed Microsoft Word and it developed Excel and it developed all the the icons on the desktop and an Ethernet connection and a Wi Fi connection and antivirus software. Let's say that the original DOS program self generated all of that and became the Windows of today. Without any humans having to type at keyboards,
2: would you be impressed? I would be impressed. Very much so. Yes. (laughs) And I would require, I would require quite a robust explanation for that.
1: Yes. Okay. So that's how Christians should view evolution. This, (laughs) this is a keto. This is martial arts. This is using the opponent's momentum against them. So dear atheists, dear Darwinists, dear evolutionists, I fully accept your thesis that one cell evolved into the the entire ecosystem that we have all over the earth with these beautiful fish and mammals and people and viruses and bacteria and trees and, and flowers and all of it. I fully accept your thesis that it all generated from a single cell over three or four billion years. So where does the generative capacity to do that come from? And how is that any different than DOS evolving into Windows over 40 years? Hmm. I see there is no difference. The reason that I find it plausible is because I started studying real-time evolution experiments rather than
0: paleological inferences. Like backwards extrapolation or whatever.
1: Yeah, back, like or I'm not, not going to sit and argue about fossils. I'm only going to accept stuff that you can do in the lab and watch and observe like Barbara McClintock's corn plants re-engineering themselves, like generating new species by hybridizing two species together to get a third species, which plant biologists do all the time. I'm only interested in Bacteria or other organisms exchanging DNA with each other and acquiring new characteristics by horizontal gene transfer. I'm only interested in symbiotic mergers that will turn bacteria plus plant animal cell equals equals mitochondria. I'm only interested in what you can actually show me will happen, and that's that's what I wrote the whole book about. And I said because these incredible processes happen in real time and exhibit a level of engineering that humans could only be envious of i find it plausible that one cell can turn into a whole entire ecosystem of modern earth and the question is what kind of uni- what kind of creator does it take to make a universe that's capable of giving birth to that that's capable of creating that kind of ecosystem and so that's why my book summarized in two sentences is Darwinists underestimate nature, and creationists underestimate God. I think both sides fail to take their own theory seriously enough. And when I was listening to an NPR interview one time, I heard Richard Dawkins, world's most famous atheist, somebody calls in on the phone, and they said, Mr. Dawkins, where did life come from? And he goes, it was a happy chemical accident. I almost put my fist through the ceiling. I thought, an an (laughs) Oxford professor is saying stuff like this and getting away with it? Hmm. I can't believe it. I was aghast. And I thought, it's not the theologian or pastor's kid in me that finds that upsetting. It's the engineer. Hmm. I know how hard it is to design a circuit or a digital network or a computer, or write a piece of software, he's going to tell me that the first cell was an accident and then every step of evolution all ever since was just an accumulation of more and more accidents? That's not science. Science is the study of logical, rational processes that you can mathematically model and break down. He's not giving you a scientific theory. He's giving you a story. He's giving you a religious narrative. It's just an irreligious narrative. And that made me so upset. I was I was just appalled at the level of conversation that was going on out there. I said, I have to do something about this. Like, I, I can't, I just can't sit and not do something. What can I do?
0: So DNA is a code. You argue that throughout the book. So you want to unpack how, you know, we talked a little bit about You know how codes can't come from non-intelligence we've talked a a bit about adding noise to a system doesn't increase the complexity or increase the information Mm -hmm. from your background in software engineering and and engineering various systems how does that inform your view on the role and the origin of of dna so so that
1: gets you into the origin of life and where did the genetic code come from and so After after a few years of making that argument, DNA is code, code, all the codes are designed, therefore DNA is designed. Uh, I I really only had one frustration, uh, like when I would mix it up with atheists, which was I had a very hard time getting them to agree on the definitions and the arguments would just go around in circles. And one day I had this realization, Perry, write a specification Show them how to prove you wrong, and put money on the table, and say, "Prove me wrong." And so, I said, I wrote a blog post. And I said, "If you want to prove that you have a code that nobody designed, here's what you got to do." And I and I I stole something right out of an engineering textbook. I made a spec, and I was arguing with this guy on my blog, and I said, "Okay, here's what you got to do. If you can do this." I will write you a check for $10,000. And I remember pressing the button, like post the blog post and going, you ever done this? What's going to happen now? <laughs> <laughs> like, You know, did I just launch a nuclear missile? Um, am I going to get attacked? Uh, you know, what's going to happen? And what happened was nothing. He, he went silent. And the the back and forth and the round and round and round and circle is just stopped. I was like, "Well, that was interesting." Then I get in the same conversation again next week, and I tried it again, and it just stopped. From that point forward, every time I would put this in front of people, I was saying, "Put up or shut up." I don't want to have a philosophical argument. You're either going to come show up with some evidence, or you're going to shut up. So what's <laughs> it going to be? And 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 it just went silent. And and. This is probably after about five years of like duking it out and trying any which way. And, you know, one one of my goals for a while had been, man, I, I, you know, I'm going to back an atheist into a corner in 30 minutes. I'm going to back an atheist into a (laughs) corner in 10 minutes. I'm going to back him into a lot. Now I got it down to 30 seconds, you know. (laughs) Wow. You know, congratulations. So. Hmm. Oh, what? So now, well, what you find with most atheists is they're not even remotely interested in changing their views or, or, or anything like that. And sometimes there's the only reason to argue with them is just to kind of sharpen your sword and polish your own thinking, okay? Which, okay, that has a certain amount of value. But now that I could back any atheist into a corner in 30 seconds... I started thinking, all right, well, what can we do with this that would actually be useful? And what I did was I said, well, I think this is actually a valuable question. And I don't think just saying God did it. I don't like God of the gaps arguments. I think we can actually do better than that. So I absolutely positively believe in God. and We haven't talked about that very much. We can if you want. I believe in God as much as I ever have. But I don't need any particular unsolvable scientific question in order to believe in God. To me, it's enough to know that I live in this magnificent cosmos that has this capacity to self-create that is absolutely mind-blowing. That's, that's enough for me. Mm. But, but what I love about science is that you can always peel the onion. Any question that you want to approach, you can always find another layer Of understanding how it works and understanding, there's always more curiosity and more discovery, and so I started to think, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't think of God as like this computer programmer who typed up the genetic code and downloaded it into a cell and pulled the lawnmower engine and started it all up. You know, maybe, maybe it's even more subtle than that. And I know that if I if I turn this into a God of the gaps argument, I just shut down conversation. Whereas if I, if I put this out there as an open question that might be solvable, I, I can open up conversation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to investors, I'm going to raise $10 million of investment money, and I'm going to turn this into a prize. And we're going to establish without any question that where the genetic code comes from has never been at, answered. We don't know where codes come from in biology. We don't know what agency is in biology. We don't know where where that comes from. Let's make the biggest basic science research prize in the world. And let's get people thinking about this. And let's force the world to ask better questions than they're asking right now. Let's make it impossible for Richard Dawkins to ever say, boy, it was a happy chemical accident. Hmm. Let's, Let's just take that kind of discussion off the table. And let's start having real discussion. And so it it took quite a long time, but I raised the money. And in 2019, Dennis Noble invited me to the Royal Society and we did a press announcement. And we announced a $10 million prize for the origin of the genetic code. And I've got George Church uh, from Harvard. He's probably the most influential geneticist alive today. Um, He's on my judging panel. Michael Ruse, who's a somewhat famous atheist. Yeah. You guys are undoubtedly familiar with him. He's also a very yes. friendly, friendly, wonderful person. He's not a jerk. Yeah, and he I seems really that way him. in debates. Um, he, he's a very, very reasonable guy. Uh, and I get Dennis, George, and Mike uh, on my judging panel, and it was announced, uh, it was it had a story in the Financial Times a couple of days later, it's been written up in a lot of scientific journals. And now I'm involved in origin of life discussions, virus research, questions about agency, co-founder of the Cancer and Evolution Working Group in the American Association of Cancer Research, which is, which is a whole story in, it, in itself. I'm deeply, I found myself, so now here we are in 2023, I'm deeply involved in some really wonderful academic societies. And what, what all of these groups have in common is they are very dissatisfied with the traditional darwinian explanation of how things work it's pretty much useless it's a terrible theory and there are much better models of evolution and they're very important because they influence things like immunization and immunology and cancer and tumors and cancer treatments and so it's it's probably a third of my life is now being a science researcher. Two thirds of my life is being a business strategist and a consultant and an author. And I run seminars and I have consulting clients and all of that. And that's wonderful. But about a third of my life is being a scientist.
2: Hmm. That's fascinating. So I'm curious, you've mentioned your you know, kind of debating your thesis, if, if you will, with um, unbelievers and skeptics and, and things like that. I, I'm curious as to what your interactions have been with fellow believers as far as, you know, we've talked about young and old earth creationists, intelligent design theorists. What, what have your interactions been like with them? What are maybe some of the major pushbacks and that kind of thing?
1: So do you guys know Paul Nelson from the Discovery Institute? Is that yes? Name?
2: Yeah. And he's a, he's a young earth creationist, isn't he? Yeah.
1: Paul was right here in this room at my house about three days ago. And we recorded a podcast that should come out on the evolution 2.0 podcast soon. And we, we did a three-way with Joanna Xavier uh, at university college London. And she and I had done a podcast in which we had talked about some of our both positives and criticisms of intelligent design, which caused him to write a blog post on the Discovery Institute website. And since I've known him for 15 years, I said, well, why don't you come over to my house? He lives like 45 minutes from here. Why don't you come over to my house and let's have a conversation about this. And mm-hmm. so we did. And the name of the conversation is Intelligent Design Grows Up. And, and what, what happened in that conversation was Joanna, who is an origin of life researcher. I think she's one of the best in the world and she's only 34. I think her work is absolutely brilliant. She was talking about how she read Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in in the Cell. And she thought the scholarship of that book was excellent. And, and she likes the book and recommends the book. And she thinks that it raises great questions. And and I completely agree. But we had an issue with it, which was we dislike the God of the gaps viewpoint, which is what signature in the cell really. I mean, it's really the title implies that. Um, And that there are a lot of biochemical processes that are discoverable um, and observable. That and, and if you say, "Well, God did it," and that's the answer, you shortcut science because science can always discover more and more and more. And so, that is what I would consider to be a sort of that's kind of like the teenage version of of intelligent design. And 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 what what Paul came here and said because he said it himself, he said intelligent design was in teenage years for a very long time, and it was basically just Darwin bashing. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to do, and it's kind of an addictive thing, and it attracts a crowd, and you can build a movement around it. But at sometimes it's too much like the mouthy, know-it-all teenager telling mom and dad that they're stupid. He, He said, intelligent design is moving past that. And we are getting to where we're asking the questions, what positive inquiry can a design lens bring to the practice of science to understand how organisms work better, to understand its origins better, and not just insert God of the gas, but rather see nature as having a much deeper structure than, we, than most people ever originally imagined. And using that to make origin of life and evolution much better fields than they are. Because honestly, a lot of evolutionary biology is just intellectual slop. It's it's post-hoc explanations of how, well, of course we have it because natural selection selected it. And, and we, it, if it didn't happen, we wouldn't be here anyway, kind of arguments, which are just, mm. they're worse than useless as opposed to you know, what Barbara McClintock was doing or what Lynn Margulis was doing, was they were trying to understand what are the structures and the processes by which a cell re-engineers itself and becomes something very different than what it, what it used to be. And why did it do that? What environmental signals did it get? And how does it process all of that information? And so we had a very, very cordial conversation. And I think this is a kind of conversation that was pretty much impossible to have five or 10 years ago. Hmm.
2: So what distinguishes your view from Dr. Myers view? Because he, he also argues that, you know, DNA is genetic digital code or, you know, that's that's what he calls it. So so how does your approach differ from Dr. Myers?
1: Well, so when I say DNA is design, you know, one interpretation of that would be, OK, so God is like an engineer, and he set up the genetic code table, and he built the first cell, and he switched it on, almost like a human engineer would, you know, build a transistor radio and stick the battery in and turn it on, and then away it went. Well, that's that's one way of viewing design, but I think a deeper way of viewing design is to understand that all. Living cells possess all organisms, possess some level of sentience, and they are self-aware, and that they they design and redesign themselves because of their agency, and I mean the philosophical term agency, which is the ability to act on the world and effect change
0: mm-hmm.
1: at will, and that the genetic code is downstream from an intrinsic agency, which we don't understand. The consciousness people would call it the hard problem of consciousness. And Paul Davies and Sarah Walker call it the hard problem of life, which is information. And so I think there's a question behind the question, which is agency, which in philosophical terms is really free will. It's like, Where does free will come from? And and I say that free will isn't just a human phenomenon. Free will goes all the way down to the cellular level. And every living thing on earth possesses it to at least some minute degree. And that's what makes life possible. That's the thing that makes life alive. And that's the thing we don't understand. And so it may be woven into the fabric of the universe. But it's also perfectly compatible with the Christian conception of God, the creator, as I understand. it. It's perfectly compatible with the biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we have is a way that science and the biblical worldview can coexist and where evolution is the biggest miracle of history.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Uh, it goes beyond what read in the book. So I kind of want to pursue that bunny trail. Um, because you know, everything I've seen that you're, you're writing in their book, I'm saying, okay, here's, here's his, uh, reasons and things like that but i don't know what your reasons are for thinking of agency being on a cellular level now you did mention in the book how there are certain bacterial bacteria and things like that where it seems as if they're communicating and almost Mm -hmm. casting a vote for and for for doing some sort of changes in a a group maybe that's what you're alluding to but what sort of data are you drawing this idea from where you're seeing agency at that sort of level
1: barbara McClintock, in her nobel prize paper in 1984 she explained that in her many experiments with plants mostly over many decades and cells that if you put a living organism in a situation That its ancestors had been in before, there would be a predictable, almost algorithmic response. So, heat shock, you you take a bacteria and you raise the temperature 20 degrees and you put it in a state of emergency, it will go through a predictable set of processes as a response to that. And if you damage the genome, it will do a predictable set of processes. And, and 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 so on. But if you did something that's never been done before, it will respond in a completely unique way and exhibit ingenuity in doing so. So I will give you an example. Mike Levin is a guy at Tufts University, and he explains that if you take cells and you expose them to barium. It will Im- immediately kill them. But if you reduce the amount of barium and you like threaten them with it, but it's not enough to kill it, they will engineer a change in their physiology that resists barium, even though there's no reason to believe that in any time in the history of Earth that there's ever been a barium amphibian incident that would program this ability already. In other words, he's saying that they they develop this ability as an innovation in real time. The thesis of Barbara's entire career is that when you subject organisms to completely new things for which they were unprepared, they will exercise ingenuity every time they may not succeed. It may not work. They may die from the barium, but they, they kind of exhibit that Nietzsche thing, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Hmm. And, and she said in her Nobel prize paper, a question for the 21st century is going to be, what does a cell know about itself? She believed that all plants and animals and cells have some degree of self-awareness. And her student, James Shapiro, who is one of my mentors, he's at the University of Chicago, he published a paper about three years ago called All Living Cells Are Cognitive. And he is a very thorough researcher and he makes a very robust case that every kind of bacteria, every kind of eukaryote, every kind of plant and animal exhibits um, something roughly in the neighborhood of self awareness or, or consciousness. It has all of the signs and asking what, well, what kind of consciousness is really the quality of problem, which, which is I don't know what you see when you see red and I don't know what you see, you know, you don't know what I see when I see red. We just know that we call it red, but we have no way of knowing your experience of it versus my experience of it. So the qualia problem all goes all the way down to self. And so that's why I think there's a very, very good case to be made uh, for this. And there's an entire subcategory of science called basal cognition. If you just go to Google Scholar and type basal cognition, you'll find thousands of papers and they're concerned with what do slime molds and plant roots, and bacteria, and protozoans, what do they know? And what do they experience? And guess what, trees talk to each other, and bacteria talk to each other. And I I think people, many people in many cultures have thought this way for for thousands of years, but modern Western people don't think this way. And I just think it's an er an erroneous way of viewing the world. I think the world is much more alive than we think it is. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's super fascinating. So we when we um, started the interview we were talking a bit about how this whole thing came about with your brother and the back and forths and all that so uh, one of the things I want to know is is what's going on there what's going on with your brother and, and how has this research impacted him or is has it or
1: about, about 10 years ago we were driving a car and he says Perry, thank you for not letting me become an atheist <laughs> and and he said, he did move home a couple months later after that conversation. He was angry. He was Mm. bitter. Um, He felt like, well, 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 I have to say, I think he had a lot of legitimate questions and I would have been dissatisfied with some of the answers that he got as well. I think he graduated from seminary believing that, He had been given the master Excel spreadsheet of all of the theological answers, and this is the way the world is. And living in China four years on his own, independently, with nobody breathing down his neck, and being in his late twenties and having access to the internet, he started to grow up, and he started to to go, "Gee, you know, maybe the Earth really isn't six thousand years old." and you know, and on and on and on, like all of these. And that that Excel spreadsheet really started unraveling. By the time he came home, he was angry and bitter. Hmm. And um, there was no way I was talking him back into the faith. That's for sure. But, you know, all of us have a finite amount of influence over other people. May, we not may not be able to get him to move 10 feet. But maybe we could get him to move one or two feet. He got for a little while. He was pretty enamored with people like James Randi, and uh, and he was reading a lot of atheist literature, and he was really liking it for a while. But I I really challenged him on some of that, and you know, at this time, obviously, I'm going very deep into in all the science stuff, which he very quickly started to appreciate. Uh, he's always liked evolution 2.0. He's always thought it was totally fascinating. He's never had any particular disagreement with any of the things that I've found uh, with it. He started to realize that, you know, when, when he left the faith, he was very strongly tempted to just attach himself to yet another form of fundamentalism. Hmm. Um, but he kind of, you know, I was pulling on him a little bit and he kind of took a step back and he took a chill pill. I, I, he, he did some therapy work. He did some inner work. And he kind of realized, man, I, I got some anger I, I got to deal with. And I, I I got some disappointments and some wounds that I got to deal with. And I need to take responsibility for this and not just join some other cult or whatever. and And so he became a, what I would describe as a very, amicable, mild, agnostic. And that's still kind of where he is. Okay, uh, You don't argue, we don't fight. We have a great deal of appreciation for each other. I don't feel like it's my job to convince him of stuff. He loves the science work I'm doing. He's totally, every time we talk on the phone, he always asks me, oh, it's, okay, so what's the latest crazy rabbit hole that you got going down this week? <laughs> and, and, and there's always, you know, there's always something. Uh, I, I love him to death and I am comfortable with it's like it's not my job to tell my brother what to believe. And and there there's this kind of space that needs to be held where we can be comfortable with each other. And one of the things that I really have tried to create with Evolution 2.0 is what I would call a demilitarized zone. It's kind of like the strip between North and South Korea where nobody's shooting at each other. and like, I'm not going to tackle you and take you down with, and muscle you with some philosophical argument, but we're, we're, we're going to more focus on the mystery and the unanswered questions. Like, where does a universe this amazing come from? And if we take design seriously, not as one singular event long ago, but as a, as a lens and a paradigm, or understand how living things do what they do, how is it gonna help us with cancer research? How is it gonna help us with viruses and form a better dialogue in science than than what it's been? Because evolutionary biology has been, it's almost, it's almost as though they invented cancel culture like 50 years ago, and the whole world was <laughs> covered in the last five years.
2: That's a pretty fair assessment, I think. Anybody who challenges the paradigm is quickly shot down or demonized or, yeah.
1: Well, and and I got to say, you, you know, who has really made some huge strides is Dennis Noble. Hmm. Um, Dennis and James Shapiro organized uh, a group called the Third Way of Evolution, which is now it's about 70 or 80 highly, highly credentialed scientists. And there's a Third Wave Evolution website, and all of their profiles are on there, and all their publications are listed, and you can go find all you want. And it's a public statement. We do not agree with the standard Darwinian explanation. It is inadequate. It is inaccurate. It does not match what we currently know about science. It's obsolete. It needs to go. We are not creationists we are in favor of a view of nature that says that life is capable of engineering itself. And that is this very deep rabbit hole that we've barely barely begun to even start to understand. And Dennis debated Richard Dawkins in June. Um, In fact, the whole video is on my website. Uh, You can watch the whole thing. Dennis was on Dawkins' PhD supervision committee. In the 1960s, oh wow, um, okay, and and Dennis is—he's 86 years old. He is an eminently respected British scientist. He's got a Commander of the British Empire from Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Dawkins was very nervous. Dawkins did not do a good job. Dennis could have eviscerated him, but Dennis is too polite for that. Hmm. But Dawkins clearly was outmatched and you can watch that thing and you can see that dawkins like dawkins knowledge of biology is literally 30 years out of date and 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 dennis is making huge waves in the evolutionary biology community now
2: yeah, I think that's a that's a fair. Um, I mean, I, I please know this is coming from the perspective of an elementary school teacher who is a layman in, you know, these matters. But it's one of the things that's always fascinated me about Dawkins. And you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there and you you have much more uh, street cred to say it, but that I always thought like. Okay, a lot of the stuff you're saying was true like 30, 40 years ago, or at least we believed it, you know, but but that's no longer the case. Like, why aren't you catching up? You're you're Richard Dawkins, you know, you know, so um I just always have found that fascinating. So
1: uh, he he's been drinking his own Kool-Aid for so long. I I don't honestly think he really he believed knows. the
2: hype kind of thing. He believed his own PR. And yeah let-
1: the, the Selfish Gene is a wonderfully attractive, appealing, simple to explain story for like Evolution 101 and, and people love it and the book is wonderfully written, but it's terribly wrong. It's just, mm. it is wrong at so many levels. Most of it is just wrong and, and uh, it's getting very long in the tooth and a lot of people in the profession know it. And, and it's like, it's almost like in the book of Narnia, when spring starts to come uh, after the winter, uh, that uh, that's, what's going on in evolutionary biology right now. There's a whole, like, if you, if you go to the third way of evolution website, or if you look at some of Dennis's videos and you look at what's, what's going on, you're going to find a whole different flavor of evolution than anything you're hearing from Richard Dawkins. And it's, it's vastly more productive. So like with cancer cancer is my definition of cancer this is the definition that most of the cancer and evolution working group would give you in the AACR cancer is when the cells of your own body start evolving out of control the reason that chemo doesn't work in stage 4 and your sister-in-law dies after, like her number gets numbers get better and it's looking good and then she's dead 3 months later it's because Cancer cells can out evolve anything any oncologist knows how to throw at them hmm. because they're smart. Okay. You can kill one species of cancer when you got a thousand species of cancer after, after radiation or chemo has forced a massive evolutionary diversity in the tumor. You're not killing a thousand species of cancer. No way. Mm. They'll just take over, and so literally, when you're fighting cancer, you're fighting the real time power of the evolutionary process to adapt and change and switch. It's it, it, it's incredible. I mean, I know it's dark and it's depressing, but it, it's also a testament to the incredible ingenuity of the cell. And all of us have all we've all had family members we've all watched it happen. That's proof positive of how powerful the evolutionary process is. Hmm.
0: Well, that's fascinating. I just wanted to say that I do have um, a friend that uh, he had been challenged with the whole evolution thing and trying to reconcile that with his faith. And uh, we had been having some discussions about it and interactions and because he felt like, well, I still think evolution is I just can't let it go. You know, it there's a lot of evidence for it i just don't know how to reconcile it and so i clued him onto your book there and he read it and he was just so encouraged and uh, mm. grateful for it so when he heard that it when we were doing the interview he wanted to know if you're planning on publishing some other books or anything else on the similar topic
1: i don't have a book in the works but what i would suggest is is i have a blog and i have a podcast evolution 2.0 podcast and and there's quite there's quite a uh, back um, log of some very interesting interviews, and the themes of that podcast tend to be along the lines of either third way evolution views of evolution, and talking to people who who are doing that kind of work, and 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 that includes cell cognition research. I get some really interesting interviews with Michael Levin. And then there's hmm. uh, there's a lot of interviews also about cancer and cancer evolution. Um, I have a couple of interviews with Azra Waza, which are just stellar. She is an incredible interview. And, and, and uh, I mean, she is, she's an oncologist at Columbia University in New York City. And she is a force of nature. She published a book a, a few years ago called "The First Cell," which is a scathing indictment of the cancer industry. Which she got away with writing because she knows everybody in the cancer industry, and they all know she's telling the truth. and And so, uh, I have a virus paper coming out very shortly. Um, there, there's another group that's very interesting. If, if for the propeller heads in the audience, it's called Thermodynamics 2.0, and and that group is dealing with the fact that. The field of thermodynamics still hasn't figured out what to do with the fact that living things can reverse entropy. In other words, turn disorder into order. Like, well, wait a minute. I thought I thought that thermodynamics said that you know order turns into disorder. So how are we turning disorder into order? But living things do it every day. And well, this goes back to the agency question. Nobody's figured out how this works, even though the physicists and biologists kind of all have to agree that it happens. And so, like, there there is such a cutting edge of unanswered questions. So, so if somebody wants to go deeper, I would start with Michael Levin and Azra Raza. And there's interviews that you can find in my podcast, and you can go through the other ones, but I would start with those. And I think you're gonna find some rabbit holes that just take your breath away. Because I I think that there's nothing more powerful than a great question. I think answers Mm. have an expiration date. The questions just burn a hole in your brain for months, years, decades, centuries. Mm. And we have so many unanswered questions. I think there there are a lot of scientists and science popularizers who would like you to think that we've basically got most of it figured out. No way, not even Mm. close. Science is barely in its infancy right now we we've barely gotten started there are so many things we don't understand um so i I think the next century is going to be very exciting also scary of course uh, there's all kinds of challenges that come with that but we live in such a f- unbelievably fantastic fantastic universe like, i i don't even have vocabulary for it it's mm. it's heartbreakingly beautiful and awe-inspiring, and I get to wake up every day and learn something else about it.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, the the last question would be, how can someone contribute in this area? If there's, Are there ways where someone who's not into biology can contribute in that area?
1: The world is
0: very siloed, and the world is
1: hyper-specialized. And um, if you let any profession or any career push you in the direction that the world naturally wants to go, you will eventually become a sub-sub sub sub, sub sub-specialized specialist of some incredibly narrow thing, working in some cubicle, hoping that the people in the other cubicles know what's going on because you really don't, because you're just focusing on your work. And what I would like to encourage you is that if you start to read a little more widely and if you stand up and look out across the cubicle farm and you start asking questions, you're going to find out some things. First of all, you're going to find out that for the most part, all the other cubicle dwellers don't know the answers either. You're going to discover that the answers everybody says are the answers aren't really the answers, or they're only half of an answer, but they left the other half out. And you're going to find that Getting to a better answer is not as impossible as everybody else wants you to think. And if you start reading outside your field and asking questions that you're allegedly not supposed to ask, you will start to become very hip and very wise to what is going on in the world. And you'll start getting a knack for knowing when to start questioning things. And questioning things is probably going to hack some people off sometimes, but this is what thinking people do. This is why we have brains. And you know, going all the way back to Socrates and Plato, of course, we're gonna upset the status quo. And and so to your your friend at CERN, you know, he has a set of tools and he has a, a background in education. And, and whatever it is, that background and that education does have bearing on other fields too. I don't care if he's you know, he's a expert on corpse or particles or something like that whatever it is he knows there's something in biology that needs that knowledge and there's probably something in artificial intelligence that needs that knowledge and there's something in chip manufacturing that needs that knowledge and when you can start connecting dots between disciplines and when you can start asking quote-unquote stupid questions that aren't really that stupid after all you'll become smarter and smarter and You'll become less trustful of the standard answers that people are giving you. And this is what independent thinkers do. Mm. And it will make you better in your profession. It will make you better in your department. And you're also going to have to improve your political skills and your communication skills. Because when you start challenging the status quo, you're going to get pushback. And and that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, You're not supposed to just float down the stream like dead fish. And so uh, if, if I am picking up on the tone of this question, I think, like, dude, be courageous and, and, and just start pressing in. And, and, and as soon as you start getting too incestuous into one field, jump into another field and start reading about that. Because the route trails go every direction all over the place. And um, you'll be amazed at how much progress you can make in five or ten years. And I think it's absolutely worthwhile. And it, it, it sounds like he's really on a journey of some pretty amazing discovery.
0: Thanks for that, Perry. And
1: well, this has been fun. I, I love your questions today. It's it's been fantastic.
0: Well, let's let's wrap it up, Perry. Point us to. I there's like 85 websites you run. I know that, that you've got eight, <laughs> like a zillion different domains. You probably got you ha- probably have a person hired just to keep track of them all and make sure they don't expire. Um <laughs> What, where, where's the main go-to place? I know we pointed people to PerryMarshall.info and PerryMarshall.com, but I know there's also evo2.org. Yes. Um, what's the best um, place for the resources and whatnot? Do this, go to evo2.org,
1: sign up for three free chapters of evolution 2.0 and it'll get emailed right to you and it'll start going down the rabbit hole right there. That's a very simple thing you can do. And you can click over on the podcast and you can subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is on all of the different podcast feeds and all the platforms that you can get. So just go to Evolution 2.0 and sign up. And like I said, there's a backlog of really fascinating things. There's debates. There's debates with some of the intelligent design guys. There's debates with atheists like PZ Myers. Um, and, And so, you know, depending on what you're interested in, there's lots of things And and you'll eventually find all the other stuff, but, but that's a good start. I want to say something in in wrapping this up. Mm -hmm. Um, I I glossed over this a little bit, but when I was going home from that trip to China after the argument with Brian and I had decided I'm going to go home and I'm going to let science make this decision for me and I'm going to hit the books and I'm going to figure this out. I was really scared. In fact, here's what I felt like. Because Brian and I had already been arguing about this for a couple of years, and I was feeling about half unhinged already. And now all of a sudden my brother's just bailed. And I don't know, maybe he's right. I don't know. I felt as though I was on a ledge, leaping into a black void, falling. And figuring I'm at some point I'm probably gonna hit some big scaffolding and it's gonna slice me in half, and the rest of my body is just gonna go, you know, plunging <laughs> and splat on the bottom somewhere. Like I, I mean, I know that sounds over dramatic, but that is really what it felt like. It felt almost like physically threatening. I mean, I, I'm a pastor's kid, I I grew up in church, I've got now I got little kids, we go to church, we go to Sunday school. And my wife knew what was going on. She knew, hey man, like my husband, he might come out of this an atheist and there ain't a thing I can do about this. Hmm. This is way over my head. I, I was just scared to death. But there was one thing I believed. I believed that whether Jesus was who he's, you know, Christians say or not, I knew that he said the truth will set you free. And I figured, I think that's true. And I am going to pursue the truth wherever it leads. And there came a point where I, I said, so is it good enough to just like understand the engineer, intelligent design point of view? Or do I have to really, really, really understand the atheist view so well that I could almost believe it? And I realized, dude, you got to take the red pill and you have to understand their view so well, you could argue it and almost believe it, because you have to get to where you could understand the world from their point of view. And it was only then that I understood what the kind of questions were I was going to have to ask and answer for an electrical engineer with a theological background to believe there's no God. Because I looked at the hand of my, into my arm, and I thought, this is purposeful, and it points to a transcendent something or other. And, and it, it was it was only because I was willing to take that terrifying leap and possibly embrace the other side that I was able to see the whole thing three hundred and sixty degrees. And this is why I came to views that are different than the other established camps. And I'm so thankful that I did it. But what I want to empathize with is the person who's listening, who's going. Okay, I don't really want to tell my Christian friends this or my whoever other kind of friends. I don't want to tell other people this scares the crap out of me. And I don't know who I'm going to be after I get done sorting through all this stuff. And I just want to say, I understand what that feels like. And I want to encourage you. The truth will set you free
0: Hmm. and
1: you need to not be afraid of the truth.
0: Well, that's a great way to end it. And thank you once again, Perry. Uh, We'll point people to your resources. Thank you for your book. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank uh, you. And really appreciate it. Great show, guys.
1: Great interview. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Brian. Yes,
0: thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of Apologetics resources at Apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's Apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening.